The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Okay, what I've been doing here is, uh, I guess, plain enough, uh, focusing on these two terms, first Samer and Katapaus, and I want to uh, balance it, and particularly along the line of the question that was asked uh, um, on back, um, to try to, to bring out the, um, the discontinuity, if you will, remind ourselves, let me put it that way, remind ourselves of a, of a certain... Of, of the distance as well as the continuities. Um, so again, in terms of the categories of promise and what you can sort of see as the, uh, as the negative, um, uh, I haven't really taken the time to do it yet here, and, and, and we will more, and maybe I should have, but you know, if there are any covenantal theologians in the universe, they... The, the writer of Hebrews is is one, and uh, so the um, it, it's even though he doesn't really use the language of covenant until he gets to the middle of the book. That's what really what he was he's talking about all along, and um, so in terms of the categories, uh, the, the, the defining elements of covenant that is promise and what is sort of the negative side of promise warning. Uh, that is where. Uh, uh, that is where, and, and further, as the promise is not yet fulfilled, that's where the writer sees the continuity between Old and New Covenant, as we've been seeing. Um, but at the same time, there are significant differences that we should uh, play into the picture here. What is different is what is announced, of course. What makes all the difference is what is announced right at the outset of the document. 1, 1, and 2, that after having spoken to the fathers in the prophets, God has in these last days spoken amen to us in weo, in the Son. And uh, what that involves then is a solidarity to come to the, uh, to the end of the line, as it were, without working out carefully. What that involves for the New Covenant Church is a solidarity with the ascended Christ. Just in their wilderness walk of faith, there is a solidarity with the exalted Christ. And in that respect, the experience of the New, people, new Covenant people of God supersedes. Here it's no longer a matter of continuity, but of, of supersession and it not only the experience of the new covenant people of God uh, in this respect not only supersedes that of the old, but it is final. They, are, they enjoy, the new covenant believers enjoy blessings that are not simply unique, but they are as unique eschatological. Because the high priest that they have in heaven is a high priest, Aston Iona, a high priest forever. So, in view of this solidarity, the writer, looking at the passage in Hebrews 12.22 and following, we won't go into it uh, in detail here, but just... What is very emphatic there is that believers, you see, have already come to Mount Zion. They have already come to the city, the polis of the living God. And the perfect tense is, uh, makes that point very emphatic. Just as... By the way, remember he's contrasting there the, the, the people, the new covenant people come to Zion with Israel in the desert come to Sinai. 
Now there's the difference. You have come. Um, and, the, and the work of Christ lies in back of that. So they have come to Mount Zion, even though at present they are still seeking the city which is to come. So there you see um, the... Um, you have uh, the, the, the already not yet structure related to the category or, or to the uh, element of the city. So there is, is that element that we must not lose sight of. And in the emphasis that I'm giving, uh, uh, there is uh, perhaps a danger in losing sight of that. In fact, uh, we could just state here that in terms of the overall um, structure, uh, the writer, uh, his eschatological structure, the writer could have said that they have already entered the rest, just as he has said they have already come to Mount Zion. That notion would be faithful to the teaching of the document. Uh, the issue, though, is within the context of 3 7 and following and his utilization of the category of rest there. Is the rest um, present as well as future, or is it exclusively future? And we have tried to argue that it's uh, it's future. And just one other example that we could uh, give ourselves, uh, remind ourselves of that, that that sort of highlights the whole situation. Uh, in the matter of fulfillment or eschatological realization. Um, there is, in a sense, no stronger statement than we have in 6.5, where the writer says, or speaks of those who have tasted the powers of the age to come. Those who have tasted the powers of the age to come. We're saying that um, this, as, this is as an explicit a statement of realized eschatology as you're going to find in the entire book. But what is instructive is if, is if you look right at 6.5, within the verse itself and with the immediate context, this most explicit statement of realized eschatology uh, is joined at the same time with what is perhaps the most fearful warning against apostasy in the entire book. And that simply points us up for us again the, uh, uh, the tension that is in view in 3.7 and following. The, uh, not, 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 uh, not simply a replication of the tension of Israel in the wilderness, but now a tension that has been given an eschatological heightening. So that uh, uh, we, we could put it, and need to put it this way, that same around today, the present time, is a time both of the eschatological triumph of Christ, the time of eschatological triumph of the high priest, but at the same time, it is a time of eschatological testing for his brothers, as the writer refers to them, for the people of God. So the present is a time of eschatological triumph for Christ, eschatological testing for the church. Okay, um, all that has been five. So now, six. What uh, I'd like to do now, and uh, this begins, um, although I guess some of this material was re is reflected on in what I wrote and asked you to read, but what I'd like to have us do now is direct our attention more particularly to the way in which the Sabbath theme gets woven in in the passage. 
the Sabbath, as that happens in particularly in four four and four nine. And um, I, I just uh, what I'm I'm develop in in my mind what I'm doing here is developing a discussion that will somewhat dovetail, reinforce things in what I ask you to read. Uh, but I'm not I just I just I will go through the um, the basic considerations here uh, more quickly and maybe in a more focused way. Uh, I just don't want to be repeating what I ask you to read, but I'm, I'm interested in underlining um, uh, certain considerations and uh, especially in, in, in getting uh, uh, your reaction as we as we go along. So. Um, you see, inevitably, this passage draws our attention to the whole issue of the Sabbath and the theology of the Sabbath. Um, it, it, it flows naturally out of this passage. Um, now, let me just say along that line, it, uh, I'm certainly not wanting to suggest uh, that the writer is, um, is concerned in a sort of programmatic way with the Sabbath question as we discuss it uh, in the life of the church today. I'm not suggesting that he is here out to make a certain case for the Sabbath. Uh, in a sense, it's, it's what he has uh, to say about the Sabbath is incidental to his main uh, concern. Um, but at any rate, uh, in, in developing his argument, as he expresses himself, he does that in a way that has a definite bearing on, on the subject. And it's interesting, that's a bearing that is too often, it seems to me, been passed over in the history of the church, in the history of interpretation. Now, when I say, when I say it's been passed over in, in the history of interpretation, uh, there is a uh, most notable exception to that, and that is John Owen. Um, because in his multi-volume work on Hebrews, in the introductory volume on the ex exposition of Hebrews, um, Owen spends just under 200 pages, 200 pages dealing just with this issue of the Sabbath theme in Hebrews. I was just telling some during the coffee break, uh, the um, Historical and Systematic Theological Field Committee uh, meeting yesterday was considering a proposal uh, for a dissertation on Owens and the Sabbath question. So we'll, someone is wanting to build on that Owen tradition, I guess we can say here. That'll probably be at least 200 pages as well. But it may not be more than 400. <laughs> remember, remember that. <clears throat> now, uh, I think, uh, by the way, it, it's obviously um, the Sabbath issue of his interest to me, as you can see in reading the article, I think it ought to be to, to all of us. Um, but um, really, this serves the, the main um, concern that we have here, because I think to focus on what the writer has to say about the Sabbath um, at the, will draw us uh, further into uh, appreciating his, his, the overall um, thrust of what he's wanting to get at in this passage. Now, um, as we have been seeing and um, reminding ourselves, let me just make a couple of, of introductory um, go on and uh, say a few things in an introductory, introductory way, and then we're going to look at each of these passages in turn. Um, the, uh, the thrust is that today God's rest don't have the same reference. Today refers to the present, rest to the future. Now, uh, we can go on and see what happens within that framework as we look at these two verses. And um, Maybe it would. Let's try this once. Uh, 
Can you see that toward the good? It's a little smaller. Um, and I'm used to putting up here. Now, those who have believed, picking up at verse 3, those who have believed are entering into the rest, just as he said, and then quoting from the psalm again, as I swore in my wrath, by no means will they enter into my rest, even though the works were completed, come to pass from the foundation of the world. We have a genitive absolute construction in which the writer uh, has indicated the, how we are to take the adverbial force, that is, he supplies explicitly a conjunction, giving it the force of although, usually a genitive absolute construction, you have to, you have to pick up its logical or uh, temporal force uh, from the context. For uh, somewhere, he said, concerning the seventh, seventh day, uh, as follows, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And in this passage, again, back to Psalm 95, this, by the way, is quoting Genesis 2.2, 2. Um, by no means will they enter into my rest. Since, therefore, it remains. What remains? We have um, syntactically um, construction dependent on this introductory verb, it remains subject in the accusative, verb in the infinitive. It remains for some to enter into it, that is the rest, and secondly, those who previously were evangelized or had the gospel preached to them, those previously gospeled did not enter on account of disobedience. Since, therefore, those two things are clear, again, he appoints a certain day, namely, Samaron today, saying through David, after considerable time, after such time, as has been previously said by me, that is the author, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. For if Joshua had given them rest, contrary to fact, he would not be speaking about another day after these things. That is the things of uh, the wilderness generation. Therefore, it remains, or there remains, a sabbatismos, a Sabbath keeping or resting. Let's just leave the translation of that open for a while. To the people of God. Then we have in verse 10, analogy. For the one who entered into his rest has himself rested from his works, that is, the his of the one who entered, just as, not an ellipsis here, God has rested from his own, that is, God's works. Hortatory subjunctive. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest in order that they're not, uh, in order that uh, no one of you fall through or by the same example of un or disobedience. Now, um, first of all, looking at four four. Here, the writer adds to the scriptural foundation of his argument. That is, the foundation is Psalm 95. Now, he adds to that foundation almost all of the second main clause in Genesis 2.2. Again, using Septuagint. Um, and what is of interest, uh, or gives perspective here that we should be aware of, this is the only citation of Genesis 2.2 in the New Testament. Uh, so far as I can see, or others um, uh, can see, uh, there's not even an allusion to Genesis 2-2 elsewhere. Now this has the effect then of bringing the Sabbath institution into view. Right here already. The Sabbath institution comes into view because 
It's just this verse, Genesis 2, 2, that is referred to in the Old Testament in stating the Sabbath ordinance. Uh, The warrant for the Sabbath, the basis for the Sabbath, uh, is stipulated by Genesis 2, 2 in, well, you're familiar with one, certainly, Exodus 20, 11, in the uh, giving of the so-called fourth commandment within the Ten Commandments. And then Exodus 31, 17 would be another example. Now, here, Genesis 2 is cited to support support and here the writer's use of scripture, by the way, does have more of what we would be used to as a, as a proof texting um, character. He uses it to support what he's just said at the end of verse 3. Although works were completed from the foundation of the world. Genesis 2 supports that. Now, we can say that Verse 4, the citation of Genesis 2, together with this, his own commentary at the end of verse 3, together they serve to identify more precisely what my rest is, as it is referred to, again, out of the psalm quote in the beginning of verse 3, 3a. These materials, his commentary and the citation of Genesis 2, I'm saying, serve to uh, pinpoint the origin, the origin of God's rest and its character as well. And if we could elaborate that on, on that just further, uh, doing all that, arguing to, to pinpoint or uh, identify more exactly the origin, the character of God's rest, that in turn is in the interests of, of establishing the unqualified nature of the antithesis between faith and unbelief, which is central to the entire passage. Within the immediate context, I'm saying, um, the writer's overriding concern is to, uh, to establish not simply establish the antithesis, but show the the unqualified, uh, stark nature of the opposition between faith and unbelief. And that is a fundamental dimension throughout um, the passage. Um, Let me just uh, try to elaborate on that a little bit further. The, uh, The point... In verses 3 through 5, the point of verses 3 through 5 we're saying, or the writer is is saying, is that the wilderness generation failed to enter my rest, God's rest. They failed to enter the rest, not because it wasn't available, not because of its non-availability, Because, as the writer says in the verse 3, his point is, it's been there from the foundation of the world. It's been there since creation. So that the reason the wilderness generation failed to enter God's rest was not because um, uh, it wasn't there to be entered, but the reason they didn't was solely on account of unbelief. And conversely, the writer wants his readers to understand, believers, the hoi pistusantes, those who have believed may be certain of entering it. They are sure to enter. Now that raises the question of um, acercomatha is what tense? present tense. And that raises a, an issue that we'll talk about a little bit further on how we exactly to take the force of, 
of the president of the of the president here, and I'm I'm foreclosing that at this point, uh, even though I, I I think you could have a little some difference of opinion. Let's let's just give it a, a, a see it as a present that Im, that gives Im, imparts as a present tense it imparts a degree of certainty, surety of what is really still in the future. You're sure to enter. Yes. Yeah, and here, here I think the, the category of covenant would help very well because what, what I hear you raising is, is the question that can come up in, in many different ways. You know, how was Abraham saved or, and that sort of thing. It's, it's, while there isn't a, an explicit Christological focus, uh, certainly the point of, of uh, chapter 11 is that Abraham believed uh, the promise and particularly what the writer says uh, wherever it would be about verse 20 or so of chapter 11, that in in his readiness to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham had nothing less than a resurrection faith, that he believed in the God who was able to raise the dead. So even though it didn't have a, um, it, even though it didn't have an explicit Christological focus, it was messianically targeted, I guess you could say. Yes, I think you do have you do have to make a, a, a distinction between the typological uh, experience and what it pointed to, but at the same time you can't pull them apart. I mean, there was real unbelief manifested, and uh, I think I think though it, it's it's another uh, ish question of what um, I don't mean I don't mean to be miscommunicate here, but you know we we could I think anticipate that there might have been some kind of a revival meetings that went on with that generation and they may have repented see even Moses doesn't get the he is so identified with that disobedience even though he is uh, he is the mediator on the other hand that prays for them that he he eventually doesn't even get to enter the land so you have to keep that that distinction without pulling apart yes um, what do you see as being in uh, Israel Yes, the promise of, of rest contingent on um, you know faith and trust. It, it was um, it's basically what they rejected in just to take one example of what would be a part of it's ba- it's what they rejected in rejecting uh, the the, the retur- rejecting the report when the or the reaction to the report when the spies returned. So. Uh, but, but again, I think the writer would want us to you know, always think of that in terms of the larger picture, that these are God's covenant people. It, it's, it's, it's a, they did not embrace the promise of the covenant with all of its, its facets. What, what is quite interesting to me is... And, 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 there, you know, and Abraham, again, in John, this is in John now, John 8, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was, was glad. Uh, <coughs> Again, I think you want to make you want to appreciate the obvious continuity that's being made there, without without just wiping away um, the fact that um, that the, the Christ, it's a Christological faith that is not as explicit as New Covenant Christological faith. I think that's a way of putting it. Yes, I think there might be differences in accent. Um, but I, I would, uh, for myself, I would be, um, I would always want to be cautious how much I would accent the difference. Man, go on. What did you have in mind? Did you? I guess, um, I guess I would just say, be careful saying a basic difference. In a sense, what you're, what you're, um, what you're identifying in, you're, you're saying something like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I hear you. You're saying that in he, in he, faith in Hebrews is somewhat like faith in the book of James. Um, that there's an emphasis on its on on its on its activity. Okay, so um, I'm not saying that uh, there are doctrinal differences in the in the New Testament, but I think uh, you know, uh, when you see 
Yes, there's a certainly there's a difference in accent, a, a, a quite definite difference in accent, I, and I wouldn't want to lose sight of that. But just to bring out what you're saying is, um, um, let's see. The um, look at three nineteen. Uh, where the writer adds this concluding note, and we see that they were not able to enter on account of unbelief. Now look at four six. Those who were previously evangelized did not enter. Now it's on account of disobedience, so that the writer sees faith and and obedience as very closely related. Um, but um, without carrying this further, you see, you get the same issue, though, I think, when you go to the very opening words of the book of Romans, where the accent is precisely as you described it, set over against the works of the law. But he makes the point there, Paul, that, um, that the preaching of, God, of the gospel is for the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. And... Um, now again, I grant this is a this is a perennial uh, debate, but but um, my own conclusion there is that really uh, the issue there in Romans one is it the obedience which equals faith, or is it the obedience? In other words, is faith appositional there, or is it rather the obedience that flows out of faith? And I'm uh, much inclined to see it as the latter. That, uh, or maybe even a kind of uh, uh, a kind of a, a looser umbrella uh, description that would include both faith, that is believing, being justified by faith, as seen itself as an act of obedience, but other actions flowing out of that faith, so that even Paul would would um, keep those two together. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure how much uh, I appreciate the point you're making, and yet at the same time, I think we have to be careful. Otherwise, we end up in, in the, um, you know, the classic um, position of, 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 um, of, of, of having James and Paul in tension with each other. Remember, just in the chapter, um, well, look, uh, let's just take a. 30 more seconds. Look at Galatians 5, 6. See, it's, it's just in, um, in a passage where Paul is dealing with the issue of justification, how to be justified. See, that's the issue. Um, um, addressing those in verse 3 uh, that are uh, wanting to be circumcised, you're debtor to the whole law, uh, you have apostatized or been cut off from Christ, whoever is seeking to be justified by the law, you've fallen from grace. Now, see, that's as emphatic as any context in Romans. Um, but then you see verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision means anything, nor uncircumcision means anything, but what counts is faith working through love. Now, see, I think the question you have to ask yourself there, uh, when Paul says negatively, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. Well, avails for what? Well, it's in the context. It doesn't avail for justification. Well, what does avail for justification? It's faith described here as faith working through love. So uh, Paul, I think here, is, is, is saying something like, just looking at his language, that working faith, Faith working through love is the faith that justifies. Now that, of course, has to be sharply distinguished from the good uh, from the works of the law that he's opposing. But it's uh, 
Now, you know, that you know, the whole issue of the Reformation hinges on, I mean, you walk down that razor's edge right at this point. Rome takes this and develops its notion of, of unformed faith so that the only way in which you're justified is by how, by your good use of the sacramental system. But uh, that's, uh, that's the distortion of the passage. Uh, and while we want to guard against any such... Uh, any such notion of an unformed faith or a faith formed by love here, uh, we do have to, uh, I think, uh, recognize the terms of the passage. So it's, uh, I guess what I'm saying, I think your point is well taken. Um, I think the same problem, in a sense, comes back into Paul himself. You, you see a sort of a dual emphasis, or, or not dual emphasis, but... Um, sort of two sides to the total picture. Anything else on, on that? Now, um, we're talking about um, in, in the, in the uh, Hebrews 4 passage about what happens as Genesis 2-2 gets introduced into the discussion. And um, we can, I think, also look at it this way and say that from Genesis 2-2 in combination with Psalm 95, the writer derives the two premises that are expressed in this subordinate clause here in verse 6. There are two premises. It remains for some to enter it, those who formerly had the gospel preached did not enter on account of unbelief. You see, he gets he gets this from Genesis two two, and he gets this from Psalm ninety five seven. Um, well, I forget. Well, from Psalm ninety five, whatever the exact verse is. Um, two points then. Some are to enter God's rest, putting in another way, um, that comes out of Psalm from Genesis 2, and lack of faith bars entrance. Another way of stating the two premises. Now, uh, keeping these considerations in view, what you are bound to appreciate is the very broad perspectives that the writer has opened up now in his whole discussion by introducing Genesis 2.2. Because what he's telling us now is that the rest of God... Well, let, let, let me back up so I don't try to say too much at one time. Up to this point, uh, with the picking up on the central category of rest out of Psalm 95, um, he has identified it already as the consummation of redemption mentioned in Psalm 95.11. Um, the, the rest of God then that consummation of redemption, which the, the possession of Canaan was just a type or a shadow. That, that actually becomes explicit in verse 8. Uh, but remember how we were also looking at the passages in Deuteronomy 12 and Joshua 1 that uh, connect the Canaan, the land, with the rest. The rest of God, which is the consummation of redemption, possession of Canaan was just a type of it, and it's which the people of the new covenant are presently seeking to enter. But now he goes beyond that with the introduction um, of Genesis 2 because he, in effect, is saying that the rest of God, with all that we've just been saying, is none other than the rest of God at creation. 
The rest of God, which is the goal of redemption, is the rest of God at creation. So just to fine-tune that a, a bit further, what this passage is teaching us is that eschatological redemption rest is not merely an analog of God's creation rest. The latter, that is, the creation rest, is not simply the model for the redemption rest. Rather, it seems to me better to conclude is that our writer, our writer knows of only one rest. My rest entered by God at creation and by believers at the consummation. And with that... um, we have a fundamental characteristic of all biblical eschatology. Now, what is of further interest here, uh, we've touched on it uh, in in our comments already, but we need to make sure uh, to highlight this now. Um, It appears, and... I introduce it that way to uh, to qualify somewhat, but it don't, there don't really seem to be to me any offsetting con, uh, other uh, considerations here. It's the case that the writer, uh, specifically in what Genesis two two says, in its context, the writer finds there not simply a reference to the existence of rest. He sees not simply the fact of God's rest, but he sees there as well a design, a mandate even, that others should enter that rest and share it. What I'm saying, uh, uh, in, in other words, is that as the writer reads the Genesis narrative, he not only sees it as, des- as descriptive, but prescriptive. Or in other words, the writer sees finds in the indica- he finds that the indicative of Genesis 2:2 God rested he finds that that indicative contains an imperative Now you see a, a consideration I think that that shows that we are on the right track here is this, if, if it is not the case, that is, if Genesis 2, 2 doesn't have this uh, prescriptive character to it, uh, then the first premise here would be without support. It would have no foundation. It, remain, it remains for some to enter it. Um. Let me go on here to say what, um, let me get my, a little further say in here. I think, uh, I may not be right on your question, but I think I will be t- we can pick it up. Because um, I, want, I want to observe this now. The way in which Psalm 95 and Genesis 2 are brought together here, the way in which they are interwoven in the commentary, is an indication for us of the scope of the promised rest. And, and, and I would put it this way, and I think this, this, uh, this, maybe, this gets at the question. The fulfillment of the church's hope, the writer wants us to understand, the fulfillment of the church's hope is nothing less than the fulfillment of the original purpose of God in creation. 
Or to uh, say it, I think, even better, what the writer is wanting to, uh, to, to bring across here is that the realization of the purposes of redemption, the realization of the purposes of redemption is the means to the end of the realization of the purpose of creation. Or more in, in, uh, in, in simpler uh, formulation, redemption is the means to realizing the consummation of creation. This uh, is an insight that um, is particularly worked out by Fairbairn, 19th century Scott uh, Presbyterian, in his Typology of Scripture, uh, volume 1, page 420. might want to, to look at that. It also, uh, that volume, by the way, if you're not familiar with it, is, is worth your perusal. Sometime, um, how should I put it, Fairbairn gets carried away, as um, can very easily happen in, in addressing issues of typology. But um, even though that's a work uh, over a century old now, it has a lot of, uh, of valuable um, uh, insight and it repays a consultation. Anyway, it's got a good... At least the edition I have has a good um, text index in it. Uh, the point also receives a kind of backhanded support by Van Rod in an essay on our passage. Um, that is the use of Psalm 95 in Hebrews 3 in the volume Problem of the Hexateuch. On uh, pages 101-102, he talks there about texts welded together. That what the writer has done here is weld together texts, Genesis 2 and Psalm 95, that, as von Rod says, have absolutely nothing to do with each other, have nothing in common. And that's what I mean by a backhanded uh, support um, the, um, the writer is, in fact, here showing Van Rod and ourselves what they have in common. Um, but what the writer is doing here, then, is making explicit in the light of the New Covenant what is, we can say, latent in the Old, latent in the Old Testament text. So, um, yeah, questions are... Go ahead. I haven't read Von Rod, but I have done this. I'd have to check. I'm just wondering about the Septuagint of Exodus 2011. Um, the uh, yeah, I'd have to. I'd have to. Do you, anyone, you know, or anyone know offhand what um, what vocabulary functions there? I just wondered if the Sabbath. See, the Sabbatismos language is um, um, I'm dog paddling here. I'd have to check check that. Well, the, the Exodus 20 is merely a, a reference to the, the Genesis 2, 2, which uses the word Shabbat. Let's see, I, I guess, yeah, that was my point. That, 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 uh, that what what the fourth commandment does is bring Genesis two and relate it to the Shabbat idea, so that there. So at least uh, I don't think the point is so much the vocabulary one as um, you know that, that the that the path that Sabbath and creation are connected. Genesis and the Sabbath are connected in the fourth commandment. Right, but but does the Old Testament connect that rest of the fourth commandment and Genesis two? With the 90, Psalm 95 and uh, Deuteronomy 12. No, I don't think so. I don't. I don't think that connection, at least, is made explicit. Um, 
In fact, I would say, being, I want to be careful with this, that without, really without the, uh, the commentary that we have here in Hebrews, it would be um, certainly not foreign to the, well, let put it this way, that, the, that Hebrews 4 enables us to see the eschatological sign character of the Sabbath given to Israel that um, I think was suggested to Israel simply because, um, um, well, now we're getting back to the lexical question, because the land was always seen as a rest. I guess the question is, how, how important is the, is the different, what are the implications of the different vocabulary that are used? Which is the question you raised and I'm not answering for you. <laughs> I like the way you uh, were critiquing Von Rod, though. You said what, what he couldn't see is, is implicit, and here is spelled out. Okay, what I want to do uh, right at the beginning of the time, before I move at this point, uh, you might, some, if you have time, look at it. Uh, I want to connect what's happening in the use of the Old Testament here to what Paul does with the Genesis 2 passage different verse in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, I've worked with that with, through that with some of you elsewhere, uh, and I don't want to spend a lot of time, but I think it, it's, it's important to draw these, uh, these two passages together. So, by the way, back to the question that was asked. I think it's... Um, um, yeah, that, that, that there, is, there is an analogy or parallel between the cultural task that is given to the image-bearer uh, in the creation and the creation work of God, so that God finishes His creation work, and there is a, there's an eschatological rest point, but it's it has to be qualified in the fact that then the image bearer is given that as an ultimate goal, be taken into it. 